For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to one of the great minds in the modern world of golf equipment innovation. He is a chemist and a mathematician, and if you told him growing up that he would make a career in golf, he'd likely have punched you in the mouth. Simply put, his work has made most of you better players, and it has made your golf game more enjoyable. And no, that's not an exaggeration. It is always a true joy to talk with the founder and CEO of Snell Golf, and that is Dean Snell. He joins us here on the range. Dean, it's always great to talk with you. Nice to see you again. (laughs) I always start our shows by asking our guests to talk about their early days in golf. But you weren't swinging a golf club growing up. It was a hockey stick, and that's really where you got your start in sports. It is. I uh, I actually hated golf when I first... uh... I've always been a hockey player and I played hockey pretty much my whole life right up through uh, college and then take it around a little bit after college. But um, but a golf just didn't appeal to me. You know, my father played. He was a very good player, um, probably one or two handicap. And for me, it was boring. You know, it was a, going from a sport where 10,000 people are screaming at you. And if someone pisses you off, you can wait 30 seconds and get them back to a sport where you can't talk. You stand on the tee and no one says a word. So it was a little bit of a challenge, but I never played and I didn't play golf um, until until I was really finished playing hockey. And and, uh, and then I started with it. So you know, now it's hockey still my first passion is, is uh, you know, Bobby Orr sits behind me every day. Um, but golf is uh, golf is a close is a close second. While playing hockey in college, you also embraced math and the sciences. And that's really what built the foundation of your career. It is. I went to uh, UMass Lowell, um, you know, with a hockey scholarship, but I, I, uh, I took, I went undeclared engineering my first year. So I could really get an understanding. You go to all the labs, you visit all the different, um, the, the deans of the colleges and, and spend time with some of the, some of the different um, professors to see most of the engineering courses when you're a freshman are all the same. And then your sophomore, junior, senior year, you branch out into where you uh, where you think you're going to go. So I was really interested in the plastics engineering side to it with how things are made and the tooling and the equipment and the molding and processing and all that stuff kind of interests me. So I, uh, I went into the plastics engineering side and graduated with a bachelor of science in plastics engineering and a minor in chemistry and math. You and I have talked golf for a long time, long time. We've talked about equipment and a lot of people have said to me over the years as I've done my shows, what's the big deal? It's not rocket science. Well, the reality is it is. And your first job out of college was working in the aerospace industry. Yeah. When I, when I graduated school, uh, I, I went to, out to Pennsylvania to play hockey for a few years. And when I came back, I worked for BF Goodrich um, Aerospace and Defense. So I did a lot of um, design work for the for the military, um, well, F-16 fighter planes and um, a lot of the evacuation slides and turning uh, metals into composites and plastics um, to make planes lighter 
uh, for the military. That was a big, uh, that was a big, big uh, part of the job that I had. So it was interesting. It was tough. Military specs are real tough, but I was able to work with the, go uh, work with the government contracts to design products that, that uh, fit the aerospace and defense division. And a lot of the people that I've talked to when, it, you know, I talk about their entry into the golf industry, well, it was because of a love for the game. Really, it was science that brought you into golf. It was. I, I was I was I was living in a cushion, which is where Titleist is. And I was working in Marlboro uh, for BF Goodrich and driving about 65 miles back and forth each day. And I answered an ad for Titleist for, for a quality engineering job, which was close to my home. So when I went and when I submitted my resume, they sent my resume over to R&D since I was doing all the design work um, in the in the research side to it. So I interviewed with them on a Friday and I think on a Tuesday um, they had made an, an offer to me to work in, in research and development. And I didn't have golf clubs. I didn't play golf. I, I wasn't a golfer at all. Um, and the first project that they gave me was to try to say, hey, we have a cast urethane cover technology that we're working on and we don't know how to make a golf ball with it. So I, I took that project and, and worked for quite a few years to develop with a team of, of, uh, of really good engineers and chemists uh, to develop how to make urethane golf balls, cast urethane golf balls. And it's interesting because when I started, this was the process. Cast urethane is a, is a material that A and B come together during an exo, a heated, a heated reaction and they cross-link and they form C. So it's irreversible. So the cast urethane covers, once they're molded, they're molded. You can't reheat them and remelt them like thermoplastics. So it, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction that happens that creates a bond that's really strong, which is why the durability is really good, which is why we could make it thin. So how do we get that on a golf ball? And this time they were wound golf balls. So what we did is you'd squirt the liquid into, the, into this little cavity, and I took a Q-tip, and I went like this with the Q-tip. While this reaction was kicking off, it goes from a liquid to a solid in about 45 seconds. So when it got to a certain point of gel, I lowered the wound center into it by hand and held it so it could cure. Then I ran over and poured liquid into the other half of dimple cavity mold, did the Q-tip. When that got close, I flipped it over, pushed them together. I put them in a C-clamp, and I ran over to um, a freezer, and I put the, the big fixture into a freezer for 20 minutes, I pulled it out, opened it up, and there was a golf ball. It was one golf ball. There were air pockets, holes all over the whole thing. It was a mess. But that was the first cast urethane um, golf ball that was made, which eventually turned out to be professional. The title was professional. But at that time, it was the first cast urethane golf ball. It was one. It looked awful. And we took that process and, and defined it into bringing it from R&D into the manufacturing facility um, to start up the cast urethane, and that process today is what Title still uses to make all their Pro V1 and Pro V1X products. It's interesting because you hear urethane talked about as a material, but it really is the material. I mean, it, it coming from a non-golf background, did you really realize how big a deal this was to create this material, to create the process of being able to put it on a golf ball? At, at the time, no. It, it, Tour Blotta was the cover of choice for the tour players. And wild golf balls used to spin like crazy. You know, the covers, if you hit them a little thin, you'd put a smile on it. You'd snap the threads underneath the cover. Um, the balls would go out around with the thread. So the Blotta cover gave a really soft feel, but it created so much spin 
with the drivers that it was really tough for people to control and play unless you were a tour player. And even the tour players would take their drivers at 10 degrees and they'd turn them down to five or six just to try to keep that flight down and keep the spin rate down. The cast urethane material still held onto the soft feel. It drastically improved the durability of the golf ball and it allowed us to reduce the spin with the driver. Now the players could hit it higher, so that higher launch, lower spin was really the first big jump in distance. And a lot of times today you'll see golf balls have small changes in distance. This was the first big jump from the Tour Bellata to the Titles Professional, which took spin rates from 4,000 RPMs to 3,500. That's a big difference at that time in drivers, which was a significant difference in the launch conditions and distance. In addition to working with the urethane and working on the Tour Professional, you were also working on what I like to call Project X, something that was groundbreaking, super secret, but it would become a solid core ball, which ultimately became known as the Pro V1. But how did the process start to think about coming up with a solid core? It was, uh, you know, you got to give a little credit to, to, uh, to Top Flight. You know, at the time, Top Flight introduced a ball called Strata. And Strata was was not wound. It was the first kind of solid multi-layer golf ball that had come out where the professional and the tour bladder golf balls were wound. So the idea came to mind to say, hey, you know, the, the Strata was a nice concept. The cover was so thick. The the, the Serlin, soft Serlin cover on there was very thick. It sheared a lot. It spun a lot. The ball was short. But the concept of changing the spin curve from driver to wedge came to mind to say, geez, if we could take this and make it with urethane and we can make it really thin, not thick. We can keep that soft feel. But if you hit a driver, you hit through that little thin cover into the mantle core, that's like a two-piece golf ball. We can drastically drop the spin. But when you hit a wedge, it's the cover and the mantle, which creates that spin. So you can really change that spin curve to say, we drop the spin, distance is longer. We kept the soft urethane cover. Spin is, hasn't, been, hasn't lost anything. And, uh, and I, I made some prototypes, um, went out to see uh, um, Peter Costas, Phil Mickelson, and Davis Love, I believe it was, went out to see him with these prototypes. And, you know, and I had worked with Phil on the professional and, and Tiger on the professional at the time um, and watched their reaction to see, geez, this is, you really got something here. I'm interested. And a lot of times if you go see these tour players, which I did for 30 years, if you see these tour players with a minor change, you know, you're not going to get the time of day and you're not going to get two hours with them. But when you bring something that was significantly different and Titleist Tour Bellata to professional was significantly different and professional to the Pro V1 multi-layer design was significantly different, that caught their attention and they were seeing significant increases in, in the performance of the golf ball, which, uh, which was, which was, they were excited about, you know, so that those were two big, to me, in the golf time, the time that I've done golf balls for tour players and for better players, bringing professional into Bellata was, was a big change. Uh, the Pro V1 to professional was a big change. And then when I was at TaylorMade, I did a ball called Penta, which was a five-layer golf ball. That was a big change. So those three are big changes in golf that I've seen. And a lot of the other introductions have been minor changes, but those three were really a big, significant difference in performance. You tell the story about going to Titleist and applying on a Friday and getting an offer on a Tuesday. That doesn't seem to be the, you wouldn't think of that being the process for a guy who's going to come in and essentially change your entire business. But, <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's, that's what happened. And it's, it's because of your chemistry background and, and your love of science 
that you now have multiple patents in your name because of ball design. I mean, because you came up with these different ideas that were effective in creating golf balls. Yeah, and and there's a group of people that were involved in that too. That was it wasn't just just me. We had a we had a nice. Uh, it was basically a urethane team that we had because the urethane didn't exist. Right. So we had we had a group of uh, people in there that involved engineers and technicians and chemists, and even we got involved with the aerodynamic side to it as well. When we had to really change the dimple pattern because the spin rate was being dropped significant, the old dimple pattern didn't work. So we got involved in that as well. So, yeah, I was very fortunate. You know, it was a good group of people that we had. We were almost kind of like the outcasts because the product didn't exist, the process didn't exist, and the manufacturer wasn't really interested in it. They didn't really want us to come into, into manufacturing with this unknown process that didn't work. And when we went, we only had to make X amount of dozen golf balls at a 10% reject, and it would have been successful. And now now there's multiple lines making millions of golf balls a year, which is uh, – you know, looking back now, it's it's been a big, a big change and a big uh, impact in the golf industry. No question about it. Um, but the group of people I worked with were were very talented. You know, and, and it was a, it was a nice team. And and you know, I don't think any of them are there anymore tied to us. But uh, but when I was there, it was a good group of people. Now it probably comes as a shock to nobody at this point, but you're a Massachusetts native. It's kind of obvious. <laughs> uh, that's home, and that's where Titleist was. So what brought you to California to work for TaylorMade? Well, Titleist is about a par five from my house right now, so they're not that far away. Um, you know, I, I, in all honesty, Ralph, I had gone through uh, a little bit of a tough time on my personal life um, at that time with both my parents passing away in the same year, and, and I went through a divorce during that same year. So um, Callaway and TaylorMade were, getting, were interested in getting into the golf ball business, um, they were kind of coming to, to talk to people at Titleist to see if there'd be an interest. TaylorMade came and, um, you know, I was, I was employee number one in the R&D side to it. They didn't have a golf ball business. They didn't have anything. They had one patent that, that they had from a company in France that, that had owned them. So it was, it was like I went from a company, and it was kind of, for me, it was like a, a, a new beginning and a new start. I, mean, I left Titleist, a, a great, it's such a good company, uh, TaylorMade and Titleist to be a, a two of the best companies that I could have been blessed to work for. Um, and I'm extremely fortunate to have a lot of good people around me during those times. But TaylorMade came with an opportunity to, to you know, to try to start something. And it was kind of cool from ground zero. And for me, it kind of matched my personal life. I'm starting over, you know, and everything that I had and, you know, divorces, they're, they're not, they're not fun. And, and uh, they can be very, very stressful and cause a lot of problems. So it was a start over for me. It was a start to try to see if I was able to do something from ground zero um, and basically start build this company, this golf ball company and taking it from nothing, which they didn't even have a way to weigh a golf ball and measure the compression when I started, you know, to today, which is a, you know, a multi-million dollar um, business that they have, hundreds of millions of dollars in business um, that they have. It's, it was kind of cool to go. I was there for 18 years, and um, it was kind of cool to be part of that process from basically ground zero. Before we even get to tailor-made balls, you made an impact with the noodle. I mean, which kind of set the stage for soft balls that still permeate the sphere today. Yeah, the noodle was a... Was a um, yeah, at Titleist, we did some work on two-piece golf balls, low compression, softer, trying to get it out of just being a distance kind of product. So finding a way to, in golf, typically, if you made a core a lot softer to make the ball feel softer, um, 
you lost a lot of speed. So it was, it was a challenge. And, and we did a lot of research and stuff. The noodle was, was come from Maxfly. And Maxfly, um, TaylorMade bought Maxfly. When, when I was part of the TaylorMade team, uh, we purchased Maxfly. And then we, we took the noodle concept and we kind of made it into, I mean, it was kind of a fun brand at the time. And we kind of made it into like a pasta family, you know, where there was Rotini and Al Dante. And there was a lot of different kind of models that we did um, to have some fun with that noodle long and soft brand. Um, it's kind of disappeared a little bit, you know, it got sold off that, that brand got sold off again from TaylorMade. So it's kind of disappeared a little bit, but at the time when our focus was really, you know, I spent hours and hours and days and weeks and on the road working with tour players and developing product that the tour players would come and play for TaylorMade, which didn't have a golf ball. Um, that was a challenge, you know, and the noodle kind of was a little outlet to have some fun with it and see if we could do something with it after Max Fly had, kind of launched that kind of product a few years earlier. Well, and eventually you, well, I just remember that we had a media event in Florida and you were launching the TP Red and the TP Black. You actually sent me a couple dozen in advance of a trip to Kapalua and this was before they were in stores. So I, I had gotten a chance to try them and I wasn't that great of a golfer, but I played fantastically that week and I was sold right there. But were you happy with that initial ball and how it came out? Yeah, I was. And, and the reason why I was happy with it is, um, you know, that was, a, that was a lot of work and design work with the team, the team that I had at TaylorMade. Um, to, 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 the challenge is to try to convince people at that time to say TaylorMade was making a move in the driver's side to it and didn't exist in the golf ball side to it. So if I, I spent you know, a, a few different trips for weeks in Spain with Sergio at his home, working on design and development with him, then see him in Phoenix and see him in New York. And a lot of time just to try to tweak something to say, if you can make something that the tour players want to play. And then I remember I was in, I was in um, at Myrtle beach on a little vacation with some friends during the players championship and Sergio won. And he won with that product that you're talking about, the TP red and TP black. Um, and I was there for three days and eight days later I left because it was kind of turned into a celebration. We brought some people down in um, and uh, there was a little party celebration side to it. But for me as a design guy working and developing product and golf balls, I can tell you all day the ball spins 100 more, spins 100 less, feels softer or firmer, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when a tour player goes and plays the golf ball and wins, to me, that's the validation. The marketing group can go do what they want and make a big story about it. But having somebody play and win, and Justin Rose followed that up with the U.S. Open, um, you know, and then, and then since then, you know, the staff at TaylorMade just grew. And, and it grew with some very, very good, talented players. Um, and now the challenge became, can you make products that can suffice the needs for all of these tour players? You know, so every time we come out with something, that challenge got bigger and bigger because the staff got bigger and bigger. But outstanding tour staff was built, you know, when we were there at TaylorMade. You talk about uh, continuing innovation. I think the next jump was LDP technology, low drag performance. Now, to me, that was really innovative. But w am I just a novice or, or was that really something that, that was an improvement on the engineering side? It, it was innovative, but it was innovative based on the designs that have changed. You know, when I talked earlier about Torbalata spin rate being 4,000 RPMs for the driver, then professional was 3,500, and then Pro V1 was 3,000, and now today's golf balls are 2,500. So that spin rate has dropped almost half, 
So having dimples when they spin a lot, you want it, you want it, you don't want to have a high lift on them because the ball will balloon up in the air and come up short. So you have to balance lift and drag coefficients when you develop products. So changing the product was a big change and a big innovation. And what was happening is because the golf balls were spinning so low, the, the golf balls would have a tendency to want to go knuckle and fall out of the sky. So we had to work the aerodynamics to try to reduce the drag. So the lift is coming from the bottom of the ball and the drag is coming into the, when they flies into the wind. So we had to, because we were going so far with the balls at such low spin, it would run out of spin and fall out of the sky. So we had to work aerodynamic properties to reduce that, um, that drag. So the LDP was low drag performance. And it was, it was another big difference. I, I remember doing some, some tests. We, we had a, like a pitching machine almost at, at the kingdom at TaylorMade. It was like a pitching machine that the wheels spin and you could set it at any launch angle and any spin that you wanted to shoot the ball at and it would measure. So we took, um, we took a golf ball and we launched it at 2,500, uh, 3,000 RPMs and we put flags where it landed in front of the media. And then we took the Titleist golf ball that we tested at the time and we put flags. And then we, we lowered the spin to 1,500 or 2,000, which is some players are hitting it today. And the Titleist golf ball came up 14 yards shorter. But because of the low drag with that low spin, we actually held the same distance. So it was a 14-yard difference in distance if you hit the ball lower spin. So it opened up a window of performance for a window of spin rates, which was a big change in golf. No, and I actually remember those videos, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. You know, next came what you already mentioned. I still have the original Pentas. I still have a Pentagon box, the number five balls that, that you had handed out as, as demo items. And to this day, only TaylorMade makes a five-piece ball because with the TP5, TP5X. But that's because of the work that you did in advance of this 2009 launch. You were really protective of this concept of a five-layer ball yeah it was it was a big change we were working in the and and uh and i'll credit uh jim furick as a big part of this design um i was working with jim here in boston actually and this was the time period where the rescue club started to come out so when you can add a layer in a golf ball you can add a change in performance based on the materials the chemistry the flex modulus the spin blah 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 all the stuff that would bore anyone listening to you, but for us, we could measure the impact of each club, how far into the ball it went, and then what we had to do for materials to make that performance be what we wanted it to be. So with Furek, he, he, he wasn't a long hitter, but he was really like the rescue clubs, which would fly higher, low spin, and they were falling down on him. So he asked, he says, can you help me? You know, can you do something? And I said, yeah. So I had this idea of a soft material inside the ball, just outside the core. So these rescue clubs uh, go like three woods. They really go through the cover a little bit because you're hitting 220-yard shots with them. But we, we didn't have anything in there that was able to add spin at that shot. Um, so we did. We, we, we found this soft material. We did research and development on this material for about a year and a half. Um, and then we added it on the inside layer. So the four-layer ball now became a five-layer ball, which addressed that shot that he was having trouble with. So the ball performance from the driver – from a five iron and up, we had solved, but we couldn't fix that problem for him with the three iron, four iron, or the rescue clubs. And that's what that fifth layer did. That really is also a kind of something, a testament to you of how you view 
fitting golf balls. Previously, it had been done with an eight iron or a wedge or a driver, and you were really fitting golf balls to every club in the bag and seeing where could you could maximize performance. Yeah, that's true. When I when I started, I'm showing my age now, Ralph, but when I started, it was um, we we used to put little uh, dots on the retro reflective dots on the ball. We put them up and it hit a shot and it would take a camera. Then you would take a protractor and you'd measure a, on an image off the face. You'd measure the angle of those little retroeffective dots and you would calculate the spin. Mm -hmm. Now, today, you can stand there and the little machine track man sits behind the ball and it tells you the spin, the launch, the angle of descent, how fast it's losing speed, the spin decay. It could tell you everything, which is amazing on these, these uh, tools that we have today. But we always used to measure driver and eight iron and that's it. And as I, as it got deeper and deeper into the development and the pro professional, then Pro V1 and then Penta, you know, what I, what I did see was that players now didn't really care about the driver fitting. They, they wanted to start at the green. So it used to be driver was the issue. Now it was, let's work at the green 30 yards in and find something, then a hundred yards and then work our way back. And with the driver technology, you're able to tweak the driver to fit your, your, your spin and launch, you know, so it's a true, key to green fitting process that the tour player uses today, um, which they should do. And they, and they're pretty meticulous of how they do it with, with their own courses, their own driving ranges and their own track man systems. They know everything about every shot they hit. You talk about that. And I mentioned us getting together in 06, we were on the range at Keens point in Orlando. I remember specifically, and you talked about the importance of fitting a golf ball. And really it was a hundred yards and in it's something you talk about on, on your website with snow golf, but for our listeners who've not heard this, why is it so important to fit a hundred yards and in as the starting point for a golf ball? Well, today, everybody makes golf balls that go pretty far, you know, and if you're, if you're, if you get your spin rate right and you get your ball speed right and you get your aerodynamics right, the USGA controls how far they can go. They give us a max speed and they give us a max distance. So we, we push that limit today. So trust that the driver distance is going to be there where the difference today though, is that hundred yards and in shot. Some golf balls fly higher or lower, spin less or more, feel firmer or softer. So the, the, if you go test with an amateur golfer and you give him a driver, he's, he's not going to hit three drives the same. In, in, he's not going to hit three drives the same in 30, 30 shots usually. But if you give him a wedge, he's going to hit probably five out of ten shots that, he would, that that's how he would hit it. So your dispersion gets tighter, and they're different from 100 yards and in where they're very similar off the tee. So my suggestion on fitting has always been, you know, take a two-piece golf ball and take a tour golf ball, if, whatever brand you play if you want, and go out there and, and go, just start at 100 yards and do it for four holes. Hit multiple shots, 70, 30, chips, putts. Go to the next hole, start at 100, 70, 30, chips, putts. And three or four holes. And when you walk off that green, because this is where they're different, when you walk off that green, you're going to say, I like the way the ball checked. I like the way it bumped and run. I like the way it pitched high or low felt soft or firm they're different in these areas and and pick the one that you prefer for performance and if you walk off saying geez i can't tell the difference between either one then buy the cheapest one because your game's not there yet to be able to tell where they are different and that's where they are different so my big one of the big things that i was happy about when we started snow golf is i was able to give this performance that's going to improve your game from 100 yards and in i was able to give that performance to players but keep it affordable for the people that actually do buy golf balls.
you talk about snow golf. I was just about to go there because of all the success you had at TaylorMade. You decided to move back home and open up your own shop. What led to that decision? Yeah, the, the timing was right. Um, Mike, my, my, I had this idea to try to help if I could give back. You know, I, I worked, you know, 18 years at TaylorMade and seven years at Tidal. So 25 years designing products for the best players in the world and doing some work with a lot of amateur golfers. And my kids were, get, were all in school, all in college, and they were all finished. So I said, if I'm ever going to take a, an opportunity or take a chance to do something, now's the time. I don't have to worry about them anymore. They're on their own. The school's paid for, and it's their, their time to make money and take care of, you know, Papa Love. But um, that, that's, that was the opportunity that was the right time for me to take a look at doing it. And if I could give something back to the consumer side to it. So, um, so I, I, I just came up with this idea to say if I could really make performance that fits average golfers, performance that may benefit average golfers, um, and, and, and keep it simple and keep it affordable um, and give them the technologies, the best core, the best mantle, the best cover technologies, and then make it affordable. So we don't do any big tour contracts. We've had six very, very established tour players call us for, to play the ball, and we respectfully declined. It doesn't fit our business model, paying someone a lot of money and then having to support it on tour, selling into pro shops. It, our business model is direct-to-consumer. So all of those costs that everybody has to pay, we didn't cut any of them in the golf ball. But all of them that they have to pay for everything else, we cut them all out and we pass that savings back to the consumer. So you don't sacrifice anything on the performance of the ball, but we're giving you, from a research point of view, the best materials and processes and performance you can have, and then taking that savings and making an affordable price and ship direct to your home. You started off very simple. You had a tour ball, my tour ball, and get some of the two-piece ball. But it evolved MTB red and black, then the MTB blue. I, I imagine that you were like, okay, I know what I want to do. I want to make a simple performance golf ball. But then you realized, wait a minute, there's still more to be like, even at this point, you're still learning about the golf ball, aren't you? That, that there are, there are ways that you can make it a better ball and still keep it at a, at a reasonable price. There are, it started with a simple tour type performance, but affordable for everybody to play and just a lower soft compression two piece ball, which is, which is just kind of for the beginners or someone that just doesn't want to spend a lot of money for golf. Um, and then I, I didn't know how it would work. I self-funded it with help some, from some friends um, the first year we grew over 300%. So it was like, Oh boy. And then we started getting feedback. So one of the things that I do is I read every day, all the feedback in the blogs. And I, I, I got a bunch of my customers that email me directly with feedback on, on different things. And I have a piece of paper on my desk that has all the, all the, uh, feedback I get good and bad. And when a bad box fills up, that's a voice. I take that voice from the customer that's playing the ball and then I go address that in the next model. So we were getting feedback saying, geez, I really like this, but could you do this on the next one? Could you do this on the next one? And then, no, don't change this one. So those two boxes filled up. So we held the MTB, which became MTB Black, and then we tried to do something with an MTB Red um, with a different construction. Got a lot of feedback on that saying, geez, the ball spun a little too much, didn't like the color, maybe a little bit durability issue, a little bit short with wedges. So I worked on that, and that's where the MTBX came from. So today we have MTB Black and MTBX, which address the, the major concerns from our customers who are giving us feedback versus how I used to work, which was the tour player feedback, 
and design. So if a tour player plays a golf ball today, I get asked a ton when I was working with them to say, Dean, can you take spin out of my eight, nine pitching wedge? I can't get to a back pin. The ball hits and pulls back. I can't make it stop. I haven't had one amateur golfer ever tell me that. They say, can you add spin in? Can you put something in for me? Right. Tour player, four iron knuckles and falls out of the sky. Average golfers, I can't even hit a four iron. You know, so so the, the focus is different on where to look to design, but I use the feedback from our customers. We, we've been in business, this is our sixth year, and, and it's just, it's been so fun. And, and all of the feedback that you give, we, we have a, a, a thing that we started where you can do reviews, and I read all those reviews, and we summarize them, and we meet every Tuesday. I just finished actually with, with a meeting with the marketing group to go over them, and then, and then we start the prototype process. So we're in our third or fourth iteration of our next prototypes. You know, COVID has shut down a little bit on it, but we're, we're still moving and we're still working to make improvements. When you talk about golf balls in general, you know, I get asked a lot about the difference between tour model balls and lesser of the soft balls out there. But most of the time, men and women can benefit from really hitting the best technology possible, like in the MTB line. I mean, they're they're going to benefit. And in this case, because you're really thinking about the amateur player, they're going to benefit maybe even more so. Yeah, the, the when you hit tee shots off the you – you play 18 holes and you hit probably 14 drives, and then there's usually four par threes or three par threes um, – now, if you take from 100 yards and in, if you take that range, it's probably over 80% of your shots taken. So I don't focus as much on the driver's side to it because we fixed that. We maxed out where the fastest ball speed you can make and where the longest distance you can make. And that's been proven in, in some of these independent tests where we've come in, you know, first in some of these areas, which I know that's going to happen because I, we, we test it and we, we have the results. But if you play 80% of your shots from 100 yards and in, that's your best opportunity to score. So if you're playing these cheaper, two-piece, low-spin golf balls and you're hitting shots into the green, they hit and they roll to the back or they don't stick and they go in the rough. If you can add a little performance in this area, and I'm not saying you're ever going to hit a shot and it's going to pull back like a tour player, but let's say you hit a shot and it stops five feet closer. That might eliminate one three-putt, you know. It maybe, maybe you hit a full wedge and you catch it nice and it actually stops, you know, not pulls back. That may help you with a birdie or a par putt. So, um, and save par if you miss. So around the green is where all your strokes are going to be saved. That's where you need the performance, and that's where these two-piece low-compression balls don't have the performance. So you're buying a golf ball, in theory, being told to you, saying it's going to make you go longer off the tee but you play 80% of your shots with performance that's not there, so you're hurting yourself versus helping yourself. Again, you may gain five yards off the tee with one of those balls, but the reality is you're going to be that much closer with your next shot, even if it's a half a club longer. Yeah, and, and I would challenge the five yards on a – I work with amateurs a lot. <laughs> Any deviation of an amateur driver is, is, is big. You know, so having them hit the same shot – you know, if, if they, the theory that these marketing groups tell you is that the softer compression golf balls, you're going to be able to compress it more. It's going to add ball speed, right? So if your ball speed is a, is a 90 miles an hour and they're going to tell you that you can compress it more, now it's going to be 91. One mile an hour is about 11 inches of distance at that speed. So a foot. So your best pure shot you just hit, because it's a low compression ball, just went a foot longer. Now you got to finish the hole and you've given up all your performance to finish the hole. 
by gaining that perfect shot that you just went a foot longer. So congrats. <laughs> uh, you've worked with the pros. You've worked with the amateurs. Now 30 years in the business. Have you fallen in love with golf yet? <laughs> it's a close second still to hockey. Um, it's playoff season right now. So I watched the Bruins play last night. Um, I get season tickets to the, to the Bruins game. So I go in all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I do. You know, I, I enjoy the sport. It's, it's a very challenging sport. Um, it's tough. I play, I play twice a week. I play Wednesday afternoon and Friday with my buddies and then I'll play in some tournaments if there's tournaments. So, um, and that's Massachusetts, which is, you know, seven months a year. And then the rest of the time we don't play. So I don't play a ton of golf, but I do enjoy it. And I enjoy the, I enjoy the friendship, you know, when you're out there playing and the 19th hole is, is always, I'm a scratch golfer in the 19th hole. Um, but, uh, but I do, I, I do love the game and, and I watch it on, my father would watch it on TV and I say, what are you, this is, this is boring, you know, and, and it, now I enjoy watching it. And the, the young kids coming up today, to me, are giving golf a boost that it seriously needed. Um, Tiger did this back in, back in the nineties when he came on board. Um, and then there really hasn't been, there's a couple of little challenges that stepped in and had their moments. But now you got a good group of guys that are in their 30s with an outstanding group of guys that are in their 20s. And to me, the, the, the talent and the challenge to win on tour is probably the toughest now for anybody than it has been since I've been involved in golf. Now, I like to finish here on the range by jumping into the Wayback Machine and getting nostalgic. Um, so we're going to exclude your current balls from Snell, current balls from Snell. But yep. are there some particular favorites of yours from your career that are maybe milestone markers that you think about or are balls that, and I mean, you kind of touched on it earlier that you think are particularly notable in the history of golf ball evolution. Yeah. That, to me, that's an easy one. It, the professional was the first cast urethane golf ball that came out. That was, that had a significant change. Probably one was the first cast urethane multi-layer ball that came out. And then the Penta was the first five layer cast urethane multi-layer ball that came out. And those three products, you know, which are one was in the 90s, one was in the 2000s, and one was in the later later 2000s. Um, those three products to me had a significant change in golf. And personally, for myself and the teams I were on, and I'm very happy to be part of um, all three of those models. I know that it's one thing that if people are out looking for golf balls in general, I'd say the first thing you'd say is you need to get a urethane cover. It has to be a urethane cover just as a starting point before you even get into anything else. Yeah, then there's two there's two types of urethanes. There's a cast urethane and there's a thermoplastic urethane. And to me, the cast urethane is the cream of the crop. That's that's what the Titleist uses, the TaylorMade use. It's what we use at Snell Golf. And the thermoplastic urethane is what Bridgestone, Srixon, Nike used to use. Um, it, it used to be a big difference in, in urethane technology, big difference. And, and credit to the, to the engineers at, at Bridgestone and Srixon, um, I wouldn't credit Nike very much with this, but I would credit Bridgestone and Srixon a lot on improving that thermoplastic urethane to close that gap. I still think cast is the cream of the crop, but the thermoplastic urethanes have gotten so much better over the years, and all those companies make nice golf balls, uh, very good quality, very very good performing golf balls. But to me, the best cover material, if you got to pick one, it's cast urethane. Then it's going to come down to price, and no one's really going to match up to what Snell Golf is offering in that regard. So it, it loses a lot of competition. Dean, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the range. I'm truly honored to have known you throughout my years talking equipment. 
And you, believe it or not, are one of the reasons why I started this show, because I don't think enough people really know about the creative geniuses like yourself that have made golf better for everybody. So thank you again for everything you've given the game. Uh, and thanks for joining me here on the range. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words. So I enjoyed talking to you multiple times over multiple years. So we're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> that we are. That we are. Thanks again, Dean. All right, Ralph. Take care. That was Dean Snell, the founder and CEO of Snell Golf. And his golf balls truly are fantastic and a ridiculous value. And it's amazing to come across somebody like that that has helped innovate the game of golf so greatly. Again, we're lucky to have him here as a guest. You know, he wants to give back to the game. He said it. And his business model does just that. I really encourage you to take a look at the Snell lineup. You might just find a ball that fits your needs for the course. Before we go, there are a couple of items I would like to address. First, we recently saw a truly amazing story with Sofia Popov's win at the AIG Women's Open. It really is right up there alongside Carl Spackler's Cinderella story. In the weeks since, there's been controversy as she will not receive a five-year LPGA exemption because she's not a member of the LPGA Tour. She will receive a two-year membership, which covers this season and 2021. She'll also receive five-year exemptions into four majors and is exempt at the Women's Open until age 60. LPGA Tour Commissioner Mike Wan faced criticism over the situation, but he held firm that the rules are the rules and this is not the first time that they've been enacted. I applaud Wan for making the tough call. You cannot change rules mid-season for any player. I saw Popov play a lot in college and she was fantastic then. She obviously still has plenty of game. As a major champion, she now will have every opportunity and resource to make it on tour. And hopefully, she'll do just that. But time will tell. I also wanted to follow up on last week's data on golf equipment sales surging this summer. Well, so are rounds as Golf Data Tech released figures from July showing a national increase of 19.7%. Every single region of the country saw at least a 15% gain from July of 2019. It was led by the Mid-Atlantic region, comprised of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. There was growth of almost 27% across those three states. My advice to everyone is to get out and try those courses around you that you've never played. Every course deserves our business, and you might just find a gem that fits your game perfectly. It's a great time to play golf. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. And for the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. That's right, it's The Golf Spotlight. And we welcome your comments there as well, anytime. You've listened this far, so subscribe to the range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or iHeart, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hopefully, this will be one of them, as we have new shows dropping every Wednesday. Now, that'll do it for this episode. So it's time to tee it up and hit it long and straight. In honor of Dean Snell, let's get that ball to properly check up on the green while we're at it. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.